So Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do not be anxious. For somebody like me, uh, who is generally not an anxious person, well, this command of Jesus seems pretty straightforward. Do not be anxious. But I'm well aware that not everybody is like me. Praise God for that. And for some of us, the very commandment itself induces anxiety. And not only that, but uh, even less anxious people like me are certainly not exempt from anxiety. In just the last few weeks, I have had several nights where I have lost hours of sleep. For all of us, anxiety is an inescapable part of living. This morning's passage brings great comfort to our worries and to our fears. In our ESV Bibles, the editors have given this section the heading, Do Not Be Anxious. Uh, But as you'll notice, the title for my sermon this morning borrows from how other English translations have titled this section, which is The Cure for Anxiety. And I do that because I know that some are anxious about the command. You know, they are thinking, well, Jesus says, don't do it. Don't be anxious. So I can't be anxious. But now I'm anxious about the fact that I can't do it. And so I'm disobeying him, which makes me more anxious. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that this is not a big stick that Jesus is trying to whack you with. No, here. He offers hope and healing, the cure for anxiety. We see eight remedies for anxieties in this morning's passage, which I've summarized with the following headings. Remedy one, life is larger. Remedy two, beloved more than birds. Remedy three, Lord over life length. Remedy four, God of garb. Remedy five, reject godless goals. Remedy six, your father knows. Remedy seven, kingdom comes first. And remedy eight, tomorrow never comes. Now, don't worry, each one won't be as long as my usual points. Otherwise, we'll be here till next Sunday. But remedy seven will be the longest, just so you're aware. Friends, God cares about and he cares for our anxious hearts. So let's now open them up to his words. And how about I pray? Heavenly Father, we are an anxious people. Even for those of us who aren't normally, there is not, uh, I think, a single person who has gone through life without any kind of worry. So as we hear your cure for that this morning. May we be receptive and open to what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Remedy one, life is larger. 
The first remedy is one that requires a change of thinking. And for that reason, this remedy we keep in mind even as we work our way through all the others. But before getting into the text, I want us to define exactly what we're talking about here. You see, most often, anxiety is associated with a physical feeling. Now, kids, have any of you ever felt nervous? Yeah, some some nods of the head. Yeah. What does it feel like? It feels like being asked a question in public and not knowing how to answer it. Is that right? You know, some people describe the feeling of nervousness as, as like having butterflies in your stomach, as, as sometimes being a bit jittery or something like that. Now, it's important to recognize that Jesus is not simply talking about the physical response of your body. As a matter of fact, what happens in your body when you are nervous compared to when you are excited is almost identical. The physiological response is is almost exactly the same. Studies have even shown that uh, telling your brain to think of anxiety as excitement actually helps people generally perform better in whatever it is they might be nervous about. And of course, there are sometimes medications that can cause that physical response, even if you're not worrying about something. So we're not talking about simply, merely the physical responses of anxiety. Well, what are we talking about? Look at verse 25. You see, the kind of anxiety that Jesus is, is, is referring to, that he is uh, talking about here, is the worry that you may or may not get certain things in life. So uh, when you do have the physical responses, or even if you don't, Jesus is talking about the cause of those thoughts that go around and around in your head. Now, it's not just limited to the three things that Jesus mentions here, and we are going to see that uh, more as we go along. But it's also clear that, that Jesus is going beyond just what we eat, drink, and wear because of the first word in the passage. Therefore, therefore. Now, kids, I don't know if uh, I've said this before or if any of you remember it. When you see a therefore, what should you ask? What is it there for? Whenever we see a therefore, we ask, what is it there for? Meaning, the word therefore is referring to something that has come before it. Whenever you see the word, if you haven't read what comes before it, the first thing you should do is, is figure out, what, go, and go back and read what was said or, or written before that. You see, personally, I've gone to this passage many times before in thinking about, in in speaking to others about anxiety, but it was only in preparing for this passage this morning that I realized how crucially connected it is to the passage that comes before. We had a break with Mike preaching last week, but think back to two weeks ago, or perhaps just look up in in your Bible in the passage. What was the main point? The main point of, Jesus's pass- of, Jesus- of what Jesus was saying in the passage before was that we should set our hearts on heavenly treasure, not on earthly treasure, that you cannot serve both God and money. So it shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus says, therefore, his focus here once again is on physical, earthly things. What you eat, what you drink, What you will wear. Specific things Jesus mentions here. But the principle of not being anxious about them applies to all treasures on earth. One way you can recognize that your heart is storing up treasure on earth is by identifying how anxious you are about getting it. The heart of the issue that Jesus is getting at is not whether we experience the physical signs of worry. It is whether we trust God and pursue his kingdom above all earthly treasures. Let's think about it for a second. Isn't the cause of 90% or more of our worries earthly treasure? 
Think about the things that cause anxiety and worry in your life. And then replace the second, hand of what, the second half of what Jesus says after do not be anxious about your life with those things. So for example, do not be anxious about your life, whom you will marry, how your kids will turn out, whom they will marry, whether rising interest rates will force you out of your home, whether you'll get the job that you just applied for, whether you'll achieve your dreams, whether work is going to get easier or not in the next week. Are not most of our worries due to earthly things? Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. But he does not leave it there. He asks and invites us to answer the question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Or in other words, isn't there more to life than just chasing houses and cars and whining and dining? In order to cure anxiety, you take this first before applying the other remedies. The first remedy in the cure for anxiety is to recognize that life is more than earthly treasure. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus has just talked about it. This life is not all there is. Not only that, it is not what we should even be pursuing. We ought to store up treasure in heaven. Brothers and sisters, I know we believe this. And I know that it can be the hardest thing to hold on to in that moment. And so one of the best things to do is to remind yourself of this truth in times when you are not anxious, before the anxiety comes. When worries of the world start to come, recite Jesus' words. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. <clears throat> I honestly feel very sorry for the atheist in this, in this situation. You see, for them, life is not more than this. Which means at bottom, there truly is no hope for the anxieties in their lives. Now, sure, you can you know, try meditation or mindfulness or all sorts of other things to help yourself calm down. Yeah, you, can, that, 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 you might be able to do that. But there will never be an answer to the actual problems that cause those anxieties. There is no hope. If you're visiting this morning and perhaps you believe something like that or, 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 or you know, something analogous to that, then I hope Jesus' words give you pause this morning. And I hope that they open the door to the possibility for you that maybe life is larger than our present physical needs. And brothers and sisters, do you recognize that to not see your world this way is to effectively, is to, in practice, live as an atheist. Our first remedy is to see that God wants us to have our hearts set on heavenly treasure. And Jesus helps us put this into practice, which brings us to our second remedy. Beloved more than birds. Who here likes to watch birds? Anyone? Oh, that's more than I would have thought. Who has to do it for a job? That'll be you. <laughs> Personally, uh, bird watching is never something I did, nor is it something I'm still all that interested in. But as part of <clears throat> Robin, my wife's homeschooling program for our kids, bird watching uh, is a skill that they are actually all growing in. And I think it's been nice for me to uh, pick up bits and pieces of what they're learning and about different species of birds around Darwin that I probably would never have noticed before. And Jesus says, look at the birds. This might seem like Jesus is uh, just giving us an illustration. But actually, 
He's giving us a remedy to help cure our anxieties. John Stott goes as far as saying that we all should become bird watchers. He himself is an avid bird watcher and he claims that he's following Jesus. Mike told me that last week that uh, Conrad Mbewe, another well-known preacher, he's also an avid bird watcher. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to go and buy binoculars or a 400 millimeter lens, but it is important to recognize that Jesus is giving an instruction, not an illustration. How can you help cure your anxiety? Watch birds. Look at the way they fly from one tree to another, gathering leaves and sticks to make nests. Look at how they dig for worms or find bugs in trees. They live moment to moment on simple dependence on our Heavenly Father who provides for them. As you walk out today and as you wake up tomorrow, look at the birds on the branches outside your window. Look at the ones that fly overhead as you make your way to school or work. Look at the kites, the the cockatoos, the corellas, the curlews, the double-barred finches, the honey eaters, the the rainbow bee eaters, the bush chickens, the bin chickens, also known as the the ibises. And one of my favorite names for a bird species, the spangled drongos. Jesus says, look at them. Look at them. God provides for them. And if he provides for them, are you not of more value? Are you not of more value than those birds who do not doubt that they will be provided for? When Bev, uh, one of our members who's moved to Tasmania recently, was still living in Darwin, she had two cats. She lived at our house. We got to know the cats a little bit. And before she left for Tasmania a few weeks ago, she made sure that she found a new home for those cats. She cared for them. And so she, she couldn't take them, so she made sure. She didn't just release them into the wild. She made sure that they were looked after. Imagine if she didn't have two cats, but two daughters with her who were still kids. One of her daughters is here, but she's not a kid anymore. Would she do the same thing? Would she just say, ah, sorry, girls, I can't take you. I'll I'll, I'll have to find another home for you. No, of course not. And it is that ridiculous to believe that your heavenly father will not look after you. Look at the birds. Martin Luther put it like this. Whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore, you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if he were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He has made heaven and earth, and he himself is the cook and the host. Brothers and sisters, you are more precious than pigeons. You are more valuable than vultures. You are more beloved than birds. Study his creation and see how he provides for them. Well, after giving us the first lesson from nature, Jesus goes on to apply another remedy in reminding us of the Lord's lordship over our lives, which brings us to remedy three, Lord over life length. There are scientists and organizations all over the world who are working on increasing the length of the average human life. Well, even if they do figure that out, you can guarantee one thing. Increased anxiety won't be part of the solution. If anything, the evidence is that in our day, anxiety shortens your life. As the saying goes, which I'm sure most of you have heard me say, worry is like a rocking chair. It might feel like you're doing something, but it doesn't get you anywhere. 
But the point that Jesus makes in verse 27 is more than just medical advice about the biological effects of sustained anxiety. He is drawing us to a deeper point. No one can add a single second to our lives by worrying. None of us. But who can add time to our lives? Who is the one who ordained before the world began the moment that we would take our last breath? Our Heavenly Father who provides for all our physical needs is the same Heavenly Father who has written and determined all our days. He is the Lord over how long we will live. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, you saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Brothers and sisters, he will not just provide for you in life. In Jesus, he has provided for you in death. And it is because this is true that we can release any worries about whether we will live long enough to achieve our goals or whether we will get to enjoy the fruits of our retirement or whether we'll get to meet our grandchildren. You see, sure, these, those can be gracious blessings from our Father. And they would be difficult, perhaps even very painful to miss out on them, to not see those. But when we recognize that He has written all our days... We can hold our lives with open hands, saying, God, I trust that whenever you bring me home, it will be for my good and for your glory. New York pastor Tim Keller was just 73 when he died a few weeks ago. Before he received his cancer diagnosis, he commented on how he felt like he, he still had more years to give. He still had more ministry to do. I'm sure he would have loved to have seen his grandchildren grow older. I have no doubt that he could still have been productive and done much for the kingdom of God if God had sustained him for another five or ten years. And I'm sure there's a part of him that would have desired to do that. But what was his response when the day was drawing near that the Lord had appointed to take him home? Here's what he said. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. Brothers and sisters, the follower of Christ who has entrusted the day of their death into his hands can say this. And they can say it whether they are 73 or 37 or 21 or 7. God cures our anxiety by reminding us to trust that he has numbered our days for our good, for his glory. Do you see how he cares for you? How he watches over you? And with that, Jesus gives us another lesson from nature. Remedy for God of garb. And kids, do any of you know what garb means? This is a tricky one. Because I'm sure hardly anyone around you uses the word. If at all. All right, would you like to phone a friend? Adults. What does garb mean? Clothing. That's right. <laughs> Clothing. It's not a common word, uh, but I used it because it starts with G. Now, as Jesus said at the beginning of this passage, the things we often worry about are food, drink, and clothing. He's already given us a lesson from God's creation about food by telling us to look at the birds. And now he draws another lesson from the lilies. 
Now, Jesus is talking more generally about the flowers in the fields of Galilee, not, not necessarily a specific one. And this here is a surprising comparison that Jesus makes with King Solomon. Of all the kings of Israel, Solomon stands as one of the most impressive in Jewish thought. The Queen of Sheba, after all, we read about in 1 Kings 10, when she saw how great and glorious Solomon and and his kingdom and everything he had was, what was her response? She was breathless. There was no breath in her. Now, for some people, a flower might take their breath away. Uh, That's not me. But my guess is that there are few people like that. Though, again, if we obey Jesus' instruction, maybe we will. But you see, that's that's not his point. Jesus' point is not that the lilies of the field would win a beauty contest against King Solomon. That's not what he's trying to say. His point is, as verse 30 says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Are you of little faith? He will look after you. As he clothes the lilies and the grass of the field, he will look after you. That phrase, O you of little faith, perhaps you've heard it before. It is used by Jesus four other times in the Gospels. And each time, the disciples to whom it is directed are failing to trust God to look after them. As Peter is sinking into the water, as the disciples are faced with a a, a massive storm. He says, O you of little faith. And that is the essence of what Jesus is saying here. Is rather than trusting that God is the one who will clothe us today and will one day clothe us with glory. Instead, we chase after the earthly glory of Solomon. Why is it that we, we care so much about what we wear? Why are brand names so important to people? Why is it that a plain white t-shirt, which costs a few dollars from Kmart, is suddenly worth $800 when you put a Gucci logo on it? I kid you not, I looked that up. Because clothing is a sign of human glory, right? It broadcasts to the world our, our success and our status. It invites praise and flattery. It projects confidence and beauty. all of which will be burned up, just like the grass of the field. As the grass is here today and gone tomorrow, so are our lives. And so we must ask ourselves the question, which do we prefer? Our garb or God's? Earthly glory or heavenly glory? Our glory or God's? Brothers and sisters, in order for us to treasure God's glory over our own, we must see that He, we must see what He sees as glorious. And so often we are thankful to God for, for a promotion or some other provision, like nicer clothes or a bigger house. But are we ever thankful for the things in our lives that clothe us in God's glory? Because those things, they're not always things that the world will count as glorious. More often than not, they'll be the things that the world rejects and tries to avoid. Suffering, which sanctifies hardship that increases holiness, removal of earthly comforts, which raises righteousness. A lack of sleep, which pushes us to trust in the Lord. We have received the the greatest treasure life has to offer in hearing and responding to the gospel. Jesus has invited us to be his disciples. He has welcomed us into his family and he has reserved a crown for us in his kingdom. And on the day that he returns, he will clothe us with robes of white. Are these Not glories that far surpass any earthly glory that we could clothe ourselves with today. Does your heart long for heavenly glories to be clothed in them? Because this is the clothing that the children of our heavenly father 
chase after. That brings us to our fifth remedy. Reject godless goals. So after Jesus gives us lessons from creation, he summarizes once again what he said at the beginning. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And why? Well, part one of the answer is found in verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. You see, the people of the world chase after these things. Those who worship gods of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Those who hunger and thirst after earthly glory, earthly gain, earthly gold. It makes sense, doesn't it? Your heart will be anxious about the things that you desire and crave and chase after the most. If your eyes are fixed on food and clothing and earthly treasure, then that is what will occupy your concerns. But Jesus says, this is what unbelievers do. This is what the godless, those who don't trust in our heavenly father do. He says, don't be like them. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't chase fading and rusting and temporary treasure. We reject godless goals. And we trust that our heavenly father knows what we need, which brings us to remedy six. Your father knows. This is the second half of the answer, which we find in verse 32. Your heavenly father knows that you need them all. And not only does he know, he doesn't just, it's not just our ways and our needs that are known to him. As Jesus has just been explaining, he provides. He knows and he provides. And kids, have you ever been worried about whether you'll have enough food to eat? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever been concerned about that? Have you ever been worried that your dad is going to send you out of the house with no clothes on? No. Have you been worried about that? You see, we live in a time and a place where you can have confidence in your parents that they will feed and clothe you. That's something to be thankful for. And adults, have you noticed that children generally have far less anxieties than we do? You notice that? Haven't we all thought that at some point? Oh, to be a child again. To not have a care in the world. I was looking at Theo this week and thinking, oh man, what a life. Just eating, sleeping, looking around, smiling. Brothers and sisters, all who have God as Father can have the same confidence, can have the same calm. That's what having faith like a child is all about, isn't it? A humble trust in our Father, knowing what we, that He knows what we need. And that he provides. Now, to be clear, Jesus doesn't say our heavenly father will provide us with everything we want. There are Christians in other parts of the world where food is much harder to come by, who are probably closer in terms of their situation to Jesus's original audience. That this promise is just as true for them as it is for us. He knows what they need. And he provides. What do you do when you see a spoiled child complaining that they didn't get the food they wanted? Well, you remind them to be thankful that they have food at all. You see, there's a lesson in that for us. When God doesn't give us the, the things that we want, we must recognize that the things that we think we need, more often than not, are simply the things that we want. But he will never let us down on the things we need. One of the reasons I like this instruction is because it takes it from the theoretical to the practical. And my guess is that for most Christians, we can tick the box in our minds that say, yeah, I, I can trust that God will provide for me. I know I do. Yet the difficulty is not the theory, but the reality. 
If the, if the safety nets of, of family, of, of government, of whatever else that we have that we know are the safety nets that would help us if we were ever in a, in a sticky situation, if all of those were to be taken away, would you still trust that your heavenly Father knows what you need and will provide what you need? We are ones who don't pursue godless goals because we have a heavenly Father who knows what we need, who provides what we need, and this is what we continue to remind ourselves of. And even though there is going to be a constant wrestle of that in our hearts, we strive for that. We remind ourselves of it. We, we take this remedy and say, God, help me not to pursue the things that the, that the godless pursue, that the Gentiles pursue. But remind me that you are faithful and help me to pursue the things that you desire for me to. And that brings us to remedy seven. Kingdom comes first. Kids, if you want to get uh, 100% or an A plus on a test, what do you do? Anyone? Try and get them right. And how can you, like, give yourself the best chance of getting them right? Anyone? Pray. Pray? Oh, hey, my man. My man. Yeah. And anything else? What else would you do? Oh, it sounds like, oh, yeah. Study hard. Well done. I'm glad I asked you that question this morning, Mia. If you want to win at sport, if you want to win a game at sport, what, what do you do? Talk to your team. Yeah. Isaac, what, do, what would you do if you want to win your soccer game? Play fairly? Oh, man, you guys are such good Christian, you know. <laughs> Practice. Yeah, that's right. You train hard, right? Single guys, if you're trying to woo a certain lady, what do you do? Pray. Pray. <laughs> Amen. Practice. Practice. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. That's right. You shower daily and get a job, right? When you are chasing, when you are chasing a bigger goal, when you are chasing something, something great, then everything else you do is in service of that bigger goal. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is how it is for the one who seeks first the kingdom of God. This is the only thing that Jesus says to seek first. When we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, everything else in life is in service to that goal. And if remedy one is the change of perspective that we need to cure our anxiety, then remedy seven, this is the focus of perspective that we need to cure it. So what does that look like? Well, first, it's worth recognizing what we're seeking when we say the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come in Christ. He has defeated sin and death by becoming a perfect substitute for us on the cross. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, this is what we call the gospel. It is the good news. And this good news is what we love to tell people about. It is good news because without it, we would all be locked out of the kingdom of God. We would all be outside the walls receiving God's righteous wrath for all of our sin. But because God's righteousness is also gracious, then he made a way for us to be welcomed into his kingdom through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And because Jesus lived the, the perfectly righteous life that none of us ever have, he was able to take our place on the cross, receiving God's wrath on our behalf. And Jesus bids each of us to come. 
to recognize that entry into the kingdom is the greatest treasure that we could ever find in our lives. He bids us to give everything we have in order to acquire it. And he bids us to receive it, not by our own works, to not try and and get it through our our good works or our, our pretend righteousness, not by our own merit, but by grace through faith in him. And it is in turning away from our sin, all the wrong and the unrighteousness that we have committed and in trusting in Jesus for forgiveness that we are welcomed into his kingdom. That is good news. And I hope and pray that if you have not yet responded to that, then you would. There is no greater love than what God shows you in the gospel and there is no greater treasure that we can gain than his kingdom. But for those of us who have responded to Jesus, too often we stop there, don't we? We say, well, I made it, I'm in. Now time to kick back on my banana lounge and to just await the second coming of Jesus. No, brothers and sisters. The day is coming soon when the kingdom will come fully, when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, when the enemies of God will be left outside the walls and will receive the penalty of their sin. And so in the here and now, as those who await a crown of glory from our King, we seek His kingdom and His righteousness. And that means making all of life about loving and obeying our King. And God's kingdom is visibly seen in the here and now through local churches. As the church, we are God's people in God's place under God's rule. Every local church that gathers together and remembers Christ in the ordinances and preaches this gospel is a little outpost of the kingdom of God on earth, here and now. And as we heard last week, Jesus is building his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so at the very least, to seek first the kingdom of God means that every disciple of Christ remains committed to their local church. It means that we recognize our lives, sorry, we reorganize our lives around what God's word says about how we should prioritize it in our lives. Do not give up meeting together. We seek to live out the one another passages that we see all throughout the epistles. We call one another to unity in Christ and in seeking to live righteous lives. We exercise the keys of the kingdom. And this is why we have our church has a church covenant which seeks to summarize what the Bible says about what it means to live as the church of Jesus Christ. As we seek his kingdom and righteousness first, our professions of trust in Jesus find substance and our hearts are strengthened in the truth of what we profess. Now, one of the most encouraging examples of this to me is Chris. Now, you may uh, not know this about Chris, but he gets anxious about social spaces. And so you can imagine what church is like for him. And people talking to him, asking him questions about his week, about the sermon, about how his walk with Christ is going. But he persists. He continues to come. Why? Because he knows that this is part of what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. As far as I'm aware, that anxious feeling hasn't completely gone away. But as he has been faithful in it, as he has laid aside his own preferences to be obedient to Jesus, God has slowly worked in him to shape his heart. God has grown his desire for him and the righteous obedience that God calls him to. What an example of seeking first the kingdom even in the midst of great anxieties.
But of course, seeking the kingdom doesn't just happen when we gather with God's people. As followers of Christ, it is something that we do with every moment of our lives. There are so many ways that this works itself out. Now, some of those are obvious, right? Seeking to evangelize our neighbors and our friends and our family members, to share the gospel with them, to pray for them, to kill sin, to pursue righteousness through greater faithful obedience to God in in turning away from the things that God hates and turning towards and loving the things that God loves, growing in the fruit of the Spirit. But it can be challenging to work out how all the many details of life serve that primary goal of seeking first his kingdom. And so I hope that we talk about this over lunch today and that we continue to do so with all of our lives. I'm sure for many of us, there, are, there would be at least one, if not several areas where we might be wrestling with what this looks like. And so allow me to give us some thinking about how it might look in two key areas of life. I hope it gives us some instruction on that. Firstly, in relationships and in marriage and in family. You see, in the eyes of the world, these are things that complete us, right? It's that classic Jerry Maguire quote, you complete me. But in God's eyes, marriage and family, they are good gifts, as well as the fulfillment of his design for how humans are to fill the earth. But they were never meant to replace God. So seeking first the kingdom means that if you're single, then you want to be seeking someone who has the same desire as you to seek first the kingdom. I mean, sure, attraction, chemistry, similarities, and you know whether you both like food, of some description, whatever. You know, those things come into play. But if their desire is not the same, if their desire is not to seek the kingdom first, then all of those other factors are irrelevant. And if you remain single, then seeking first the kingdom is one of the most relieving things to hear. You are not incomplete the most perfect person to have walked the face of the earth, remain single. Yes, it will have its challenges, but that is nonetheless true. And remember that married people are not exempt from anxiety either. Marriage does not solve all your problems. As a matter of fact, it just creates new ones. As Paul Uh, says in his letter to the Corinthians that one of the reasons he encourages people to remain single is because he wants them to be free from anxieties. What about married couples? Well, seeking first the kingdom recognizes that even if the problems in your marriage seem like there is no way out, even if you feel like the, the things that cause anxiety for you in your marriage are unable to be fixed. We recognize there is a greater purpose in them. You see, when we seek first the kingdom, we recognize that simply fixing the marriage is not the ultimate goal. God is working in and through you and your spouse to sanctify you in righteousness. And so with every caring and loving word, with every sacrifice you make, with every act of forbearance, every time your marriage mirrors Christ's love for his church, you can delight in knowing that that pleases your heavenly father. Do you seek that even more than a marriage without problems? As for parents, seeking first the kingdom means arranging arranging our home lives and our routines in such a way that our kids know our desire for them is that they would respond to the gospel and seek Jesus first. 
Does your weekly schedule reflect that? But it also means, and perhaps even more importantly, asking ourselves how our actions, our words, and our responses to them teach and model the loveliness of Jesus. If our kids were asked whether we reflected the love, grace, and righteousness of Christ, what would they say? Seeking first the kingdom also recognizes that we can't control our children. It's God's kingdom. Does that drive you to prayer for them? Yes, we labor in living out the gospel, but just as our salvation is of divine initiative, so is theirs. And even if they were to reject the Lord, are you able to quell those anxieties with the knowledge that he is the sovereign king and his will is always good. There are far too many examples of those who have walked away from Jesus because their children walked away and they did not trust in him. There are and doubtless will be many causes for anxieties with our kids. Can you surrender them to him? And kids, seeking first the kingdom in your life means obeying your parents as an authority that God has placed in your life. And when you feel like they are asking things of you that seem unfair or that you can't see good reasons for, like going to school every day, I have, I have rarely met a child who thinks, yeah, that's a great idea. Submitting to them as they submit to God is seeking his kingdom and righteousness. Now, these are just some of the ways it works out in our relationships. Well, secondly, another area. What about in our work or the dreams and the goals that we have for our lives? Well, the first point is that we chase these as things, if we chase these things in and of themselves, that is earthly treasure. Life is more than that. But once we have worked through that question, we're still left asking the question, well, how do we seek the kingdom of God in these things, right? Well, to begin with, there's the work itself. For some, that is easier to see. My work, for example, has some very obvious kingdom-first aspects to it, though many have certainly made it about themselves and not the kingdom. Now, for others, that's less clear, right? How do you seek first the kingdom if you're in the military or if you're a laborer or a lawyer? Or a bird watcher. At the very least, God makes clear some of the ways that we seek to obey him in our work. Simply working and not being lazy, for example, is itself obedience to the Lord. Check out 2 Thessalonians 3 on that one. To be a diligent worker is to glorify God's name in your work. There's one. And then we seek the kingdom by stewarding our income well and using it for the purposes of God's kingdom. Remember, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, these are just a couple of ways that you can seek God in your work, and there's more. But in addition to that, we also seek the kingdom first in what we pursue when it comes to our goals. How do we, how do we know what we ought to chase after in our lives? Allow me to illustrate with my own story. In my teens and 20s, some of you know this, I wanted to be a famous singer. Now, I have no doubt that during that time, most of my motives were not seeking the kingdom. I wanted fame, money, and the lifestyle that comes with it. These days, I think, why would you want that lifestyle? I was, I think, a Christian, and I'd even committed, you know, in my mind to uh, giving most of my money away to fight world poverty. But looking back, I know that I still wanted earthly treasure and earthly glory. As I got older and I matured, God sanctified me. My hopes for what to do with my musical abilities became more about using them for God's kingdom. 
To some extent, still today, uh, I hope to still use them in some way for God's kingdom, like writing songs in his, for his church or something like that. And I'm thankful that I do get to use them for his kingdom by serving our local church with them. But it's only in recent times that I have really come to peace with the fact that it may never become a full-time endeavor for me. That may not seem like a big thing to you. But this is a dream that I have held for decades. I'm sure some of you can relate. And if my heart were to treasure earthly things, it would be easy to look back on the story of my life and in my mind give it the title, Wasted Talent. Why don't I do that? Because God has slowly shifted my heart such that all I want to do with my life is whatever he has placed me on this earth to do. And it saddens me to think that it has taken me this long for my heart to catch up, to weed out the selfish desires that drove these dreams. I praise God, even though I'm sure it will be an ongoing challenge is that he has uh, worked this remedy in my own heart. But this still doesn't answer the question, does it, of how we figure it out. I'm obviously not a full-time musician. Why am I working as a pastor? And why here and not somewhere else? Why, why are you doing what you are doing right now? Why are you here and why are you not somewhere else? It's worth noting that this is a very modern question. If my parents had never migrated to Australia, I likely would not be asking it. If I had been born in medieval England, I would most likely just be doing whatever my father did. There would be no choice. So it's worth noting that one of the ways we answer the question of what to do with our lives is by considering what opportunities God has given to us. Whatever God places in front of us is what we prayerfully consider. And as we consider those, we must seek first his kingdom. Now, thinking through this has been on my mind lately, particularly, particularly over the last couple of weeks. And it has been the perfect time to be meditating on this passage. As I've considered these questions, the overriding concern of my heart hasn't been whether I should you know, find an easier or more comfortable place to live or, or how I can gain more notoriety for myself. It has been, Lord, how can I best steward the desires, the gifts, the opportunities, the personality, the weaknesses, the knowledge, the family, the relationships, and everything else that you have given me for your kingdom? That has been my prayer. Once we've repented of our sin and surrendered selfish desires to Jesus as best we can, what should be left is not a desire for earthly treasure, but one that seeks to see his kingdom come, to see his gospel preached, and to see his church advanced. Brothers and sisters, is that the cry of your heart? Those are just two key areas in which we can apply the remedy of seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now, how does this cure anxiety? Well, look at the second half of verse 33. All these things will be added to you. Now, sadly, I've heard many people say, well, these things refers to all the earthly desires of your heart. Just put God first and then he'll give you everything else you want. Pray for the jaguar. In context, that is clearly wrong. When you seek first his kingdom, you recognize that you are already seeking the best thing. And because you are doing it for your heavenly father who knows what you need, who provides for what you need, you don't have to worry about anything else. You don't even need to chase it, pursue it, look after, go, go after it. If he has welcomed you into his kingdom, if he has saved you in his son, he has promised you eternal life. Will he not look after everything else you need? 
You need not be anxious when you seek his kingdom first because the king of all kings looks after his children. And his children are chasing the only thing that matters. His kingdom comes first. And when you put all of this together, then our final remedy just makes sense. Remedy eight, tomorrow never comes. Sounds like the title of a James Bond movie. Let's be honest. This, this makes sense, even without everything Jesus has just said. But it makes the best sense when it is in light of what Jesus has said. And that's why he says, therefore, at the start of it. Michael Jordan, without a doubt, the greatest basketball player of all time, had the kind of composure in the game's most nerve-wracking moments that made him great. He took and made so many game-winning shots. How was he able to stay so calm under such intense pressure? Well, he was known to say, why would I think about missing a shot that I haven't taken yet? Just think about that sentence. Perhaps to make it more on topic, why would I worry about missing a shot that I haven't taken yet. It makes perfect sense, right? He hasn't taken it. Why worry it? Why worry about whether he'll miss it or make it? And yet, why do all of us hear that and stand in awe of Michael Jordan? Because we all know the feeling, right? Perhaps you felt the anxiety of an upcoming difficult situation or a hard conversation or, or a test or a performance. We cannot help but be worried and fearful of the uncertain outcome. But are not Jesus' words true? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Isn't that true? Last I checked, time tourism into the future still isn't an industry. Tomorrow never comes. Kids, what day is it tomorrow? Monday. Thank you. That's right. And when we all wake up tomorrow on Monday, will it be today or tomorrow? I heard it somewhere. Today. When you wake up tomorrow, on Monday, it will be today. Because on Monday, tomorrow will be Tuesday. You see, tomorrow is always out of reach for us. It is always unknown. So why should we think about a day that has not happened yet? Why would we worry about a result that we haven't received yet? Yet we do all the time. And not only that, but how often have the things that we have worried about in the future not happened? Have you counted that up? My guess is probably more than we would care to admit. As Christian counselor Winston Smith says, anxious people tend to be living in the future. Brothers and sisters, one of God's remedies for our anxious thoughts about tomorrow is recognizing that God alone knows what tomorrow will bring. When worries of the future invade the present, remember Jesus' words. They might not sound very comforting in the moment, but they are truth that will guide you out. Focus on the present. Focus on today. Trust God with your needs for today. And trust that he holds tomorrow. Remember his words, brothers and sisters. Remember that life is far more than food, drink, clothing, and earthly treasure. Contemplate the lessons he has left for you in creation. Entrust that he has numbered your days and will bring you home at just the right time. Remember that he knows and provides for all your needs. Reject godless goals and seek his kingdom first. Leave the worries of tomorrow where they are and trust in him today. The cure for anxiety is trusting in and seeking after a heavenly father 
who knows you, who loves you, and who will look after you today. When the anxieties come, brothers and sisters, set your heart and your mind on him. Let's pray. Our Father, you see and you know our anxious hearts. Lord, help us to not be anxious. To not dwell on the things of this world and this life and the treasures of it. But to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.